You are listening to the Improv Save My Life podcast, brought to you on Bits, the Boston Improv Talk Station. All right, welcome to episode 28 of the Improv Save My Life podcast, brought to you on Bits, the Boston Improv Talk Station. Have a very special guest this week, Matt Besser. How's it going, Matt? Hello, Boston Improv Scene. Thanks for uh, joining us. Matt is one of the founding members of the Upright Citizens Brigade. Uh, he is also a member of ASCAT, and he hosts the Improv for Humans uh, podcast. Also an actor, uh, and you do stand-up as well, correct? I do. I do stand-up in Boston a lot. Nice. Um, so basically the format of the show is, I, I started this show, I got into improv just over a year ago uh, after getting sober, uh, being a pretty reckless alcoholic for years. And uh, I needed like a hobby, um, just something to do other than drink, and improv grabbed me, and I haven't... That's ironic, because uh, improv got me into alcohol when I moved to Chicago. <laughs> I'd say everyone in my group, we had at least two in us before we could even get on stage every time. It is, it is weird, because um, I would say most people, after a show, will head out for a drink, and I just, uh, I'll hit the O'Doul's or something like that, but... I, it's still a good uh, bonding experience. Um, yeah, I think when I first started in Chicago, it was weird. I almost thought it was like part of it, like chewing tobacco is part of baseball. <laughs> like uh, we we literally uh, we would drink before, during, like during the show, pretty heavily. You you get like two or three during the show, and then when I moved to New York, I was like, what were we thinking? That was destroying me. Uh, at at Improv Asylum at Ranch, they do um, they do a midnight show called Ranch on Saturdays, and they uh, they drink while they perform. Um, but basically, I kind of want to just get how you got into improv and how it affected your life. If you could take me through that real quick. Um, I don't know if I have this transformational story. <laughs> I, I would say more affected... Well, it affected my life in that there's the, the improv community is such a great scene. I think even more so than actors have a scene or even stand-ups have a scene. I feel like uh, stand-ups have a good scene too, but just by the nature of what improv is, collaboration, ensemble work, it, it definitely leads to having a great community. I met my wife through that uh through improv, I met, you know, most of my best friends in life. So that way, socially, it's been very powerful. But I think you're more talking about the form itself, maybe. Um, I'm not sure how much it affected my life. I thought I was going to be a stand-up. I moved to Chicago doing stand-up in the early 90s because that was, that was the thing. I didn't know what improv was. Um this is before the internet, and this is before any improv on television, so I just had zero idea what it was. And then I saw a Second City show. How big was the scene back then? Um, well, relatively, it was still, even though it was in its infancy compared to now, it's still relative to other cities now. It's kind of equal to what your city is now. Like, it seems like you have two major theaters, right? Right. Um, so there was basically Second City and Improv Olympic 
in the Annoyance Theater, and then this place called uh, Players Workshop, which was kind of a mess. Probably still is. <laughs> but uh, from what I understand, these days there's like 12 improv theaters in Chicago, which is insane to me. But um, it, it was, but like Improv Olympic, there was only. When I joined, the house group kind of defected and started their own thing out of Improv Olympic. And all of a sudden, there was only like two groups. And I'm sure there's 20 groups today at Improv Olympic. But uh, so the scene was smaller. There were, there were relatively a good amount of theaters, but the theaters themselves didn't have many people at them. Maybe it's a better way to answer that. Um, but I didn't know anything about it, and then I went there doing stand-up, and then I went and saw a Second City show, which was kind of mediocre, but they had improv at the end of the show, and I was kind of intrigued by it, and then I went and saw an improv Olympic show, and I was blown away by it, and it had it had the best group, still one of the best Herald groups I ever saw, a group called Blue Velveeta, and... Uh, Another group that Tim Meadows and Chris Farley and Dave Kettner. So I saw a lot of good people the first time I saw improv and I was blown away and I did the typical go up to the guys afterwards and say, you guys wrote some of that, right? You had to. And I, <laughs> I really thought they had to have written some of it. Right. And when they swore they had not, I said, I have to learn how to do this. Um, but... I think it truly, ch- I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to change my life, but definitely changed my an epiphany, my perspective on comedy and how to do comedy when I started taking from Dell close. And when I got in a really good, the, the group that became my, our group, the family, and we started clicking and I'm not even sure if we called it the game at that point, but what we understood to be finding the game, that whole process, I think that really transformed how I do comedy, and I haven't, I never looked back. But, uh, <laughs> I think I was pretty lost, and I didn't even know you could find a methodology. And, you know, I'd taken acting classes and always found their methods kind of what, what, dubi- dubious and didn't work for me. What was your ultimate goal? Did you want to be a famous stand-up? Did you want to be an actor? I think both. I looked at, like, Steve Martin, Andy Kaufman, Woody Allen were probably my heroes, and they did all those, you know. They're all men of many hats, so I guess that's because of what what I fancied myself. Awesome. Um, So you went on to to form the UCB, um, the the theater and um, you perform there. There's a theater in New York and LA. Uh, do you have any plans to open up any other theaters? Well, we're we're gonna op- we have two theaters now in New York, and we're gonna open up a second one in Los Angeles this summer. Actually, it's funny that you ask because nice. uh, that's pretty much now becoming official news. Awesome, but but it's gonna be. We finally found a built building that can have all our classes in the same place we've had our classes literally all over los angeles um for whatever it's been last seven years and uh, it's good to have one space finally but uh, i think you're maybe talking about other cities um i'd love to see one in boston but i know that's probably a long shot 
Well, every time I even flirt with that, I get negative feedback over the internet of like, we don't need blah, blah, blah in our town. And it's like, all right, guys. Oh, Boston. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. We've, we've flirted with a few cities. Boston really hasn't occurred to us because it does seem like you guys already have a lot going there. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are the two big theaters. Yeah. Um, they're pretty full already. I guess, I guess that's one of the reasons. There's several reasons we wrote our book, uh, UCB Comedy Improvisation Manual, but one of them was how do people who don't have a good improv theater in their town learn how to do improv? Um, I come from Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, they do have improv now, but when I was growing up, they, they certainly did not. And I, I kind of relate to people from smaller towns that don't have that. And even people that do have improv uh, theaters, they don't necessarily teach what we teach. And I think we, we teach a very specific methodology of finding the game. So right. I feel like that's our way of teaching outside of our outside the cities is with that book. I can't say enough about the book. It, it, it's great. Um, it breaks things down to a, like a fundamental level, but then once you get down there, you, you expand upon it in ways that I've never heard um, brought up before. Um, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that because I think I, I've seen it written about like, this is a good book for beginners. And I feel like it is good for beginners, but I feel like it's good for any level improviser, really, because yeah. we, we just talk about our entire philosophy all the way to the most advanced forms. And there's some stuff we talk about, like how to pull premises from openings, for instance, which is which is almost like calculus the first time you read it. Right. It's, it, it, it definitely it takes a couple of reads. It is, it is a manual. It's not a, a fun humor book. It's a manual to use and go over and refer to and do the exercise over and over again. I feel like... Yeah, it has some humor in it too, though. I, I wouldn't say, you know, it, it, it's a fun read, even if, you know, you're, um, you're, you're trying to learn from it. Thanks. Uh, do you actually use the manual at the UCB uh, training centers as like a curriculum? Yeah, without question. Actually, the we we are an accredited school. Um, I sound like I'm bragging a lot. <laughs> I, I, I guess I am very proud of what we what we've done because we have worked so hard. But we uh, once again referring back to Chicago. I went to all four schools at once in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like I just wanted to get it done. I was just like, I want to learn this. I don't want to go do this school and then go to the next one and then the next one because I would take years. I just want to. So I went to the Annoyance Players Workshop, Second City Improv Olympic all at once. Were I there, took from all these teachers at once. Were What's there, that? Were there any like conflicting um, styles? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting to. Is that. They were all completely conflicting, but using the same words. And it took the same phrases, the same words, the same terminology, even the same exercises, but meaning completely different things. And for at least a year or two, I, I blamed it on myself, thinking, I am just not getting this. Right. And then I, and then one day I realized, I'm like, oh, they're just not all on the same page. What am I talking about? Like, Yep. I, These guys aren't all on the same page, and they're all using the same words, but they're and they're all nodding their head, and they're all 
have this positive attitude like we're all under one umbrella, but that's just not the fact of the matter. The fact is we're all on different pages. And even within the same school, teacher to teacher, they weren't on the same page. And that's even more kind of disturbing. And because then you really feel like you're lost and in, in your wasting your time. Um, if you go through five levels, you're like, man, I just feel like I'm not getting better. And then you're like, wait a minute, maybe it's the teachers don't even agree with each other. So we wanted to make sure that didn't happen at our school. And we, we want to give room for teachers to be creative in how they teach exercise wise. But when it comes to philosophy, we wanted to have a unifying philosophy. We didn't want to have disagreement about the basic tenets what our school was and when you become accredited to be a real college they make you they really make you explain every level of the curriculum and when we start doing that and start breaking things down and really start examining phrases we started rethinking stuff and going we got to stop using the phrase raise the stakes for instance we're like this is a phrase that people are not on the same page about we don't even know if we agree the whole concept of raising aesthetics so we we either need to define it or get rid of it or something i could point to several kind of phrases or words like that and that just became the curriculum and that became the book so the as we as we're doing the curriculum we started writing the book as we started writing the book we started changing the curriculum even up to the, the final edits of the book nice um i have a question for you because uh, you've, you've you've worked with most of the what I would call the greats in improv, um, what do you think it is? What I don't know if you can break this down, but like a characteristic that takes somebody from being a good improviser to a great improviser. Do you, does that make sense? Um, yeah, there's different kinds of improv, but the kind of that we do, it's. Uh, it's realizing, having the epiphany, which I certainly had. I had it on stage. I can remember the day. I can remember being on stage and doing a scene. And I fancied myself to be a very clever, funny person, and it got lots of laughs being stand-up. So I was in the headspace of... I never lacked confidence in my own comedy. If anything, I lacked confidence in the group. Like, why aren't people getting me, you know? Right. And then just one day I realized... People can't read my mind. Like, you, you can't... All the cleverness I feel I have in my mind is, is only in my mind. It's only on my typewriter in my head. I need to use what the other person is saying. And when we start to use what each other are saying, instead of taking my own agenda, it becomes easier. And when I trust that, oh yeah, what they're saying is funny, instead of just writing a full script in my head and throwing, throwing it up. Let's work together. It's such an easy thing to say, and it's such an even so agree level, level one thing to say, but it's another thing to understand and actually start doing. So agreement, a lot of agreement, you would say? No, it, it, that's not what I'm saying, actually. <laughs> agreement is, is whatever the other person that's yes and that's yeah, what, yeah. What, whatever premise they're putting forward and they want to do you're doing too I don't think I had a problem with that it was more trusting that their idea was funny right like like that's what I said about 
the way we do improv because not everybody does it that way. But the way we do it, whatever comes out first and initiates the first line in premise improv versus you've read the book, but there's, we do two different kinds. We call it either premise or organic. So if, if we're doing ASCAT and there's an opening, that means we're going to take premises from the opening and start a scene. So if I step out and I say the first line and it's obviously I'm, I'm pulling something from the opening and there's some premise in what I said, that second person needs to step and listen to what I said and, and step into the premise and, and, and let's start working on it together. They can't have some completely different agenda and step into the scene and start improvising. And other people do do it that way, but we don't. And if you're going to do it the way we're doing it, you, you, have, to, you have to work together. You can't battle each other for premises. Gotcha. Uh, what do you have coming up on the pipeline? Um, actually, I can't say too much about it because I haven't closed the deal, but I'm, there's a sitcom that I'm going to be working on that's going to be built from improv. So nice. that should be interesting. That's all I'll say about it now, but I've, I've been trying to close the deal forever. And also there's some very serious... Uh, pitching going on for improv for humans i'd like to we've we've have a very clear vision on how to make that into a tv show i uh i love improv for humans i'm a big podcast Thanks. podcast guy myself but um you can i it, if you listen to this uh you can learn a lot just from listening to improv for humans uh just the way you move scenes scenes along and um you cut out all the the BS that a lot of uh, new improvisers start with, you know, w when they're starting a scene, you, you just get right to the point. And I think that's uh, key in moving a scene along. Yeah, back to what you're saying about good and great um, improvisers. And you can be, you can go from being good to great, obviously, but it's having that moment of uh, knowing how to say your first line and say who, what, and where, and tell the person what's funny on one sentence, and not do it in a clunky way. Right. Because the other problem we have is even at our theater where everyone's on the same page and doing it well. Sometimes people stop acting. They'll stop. They'll stop acting well, and they're kind of acting like a, a two-dimensional character rather than just a person. Right. So they are getting out of who and wearing a premise, but they're coming off like a comedy robot. <laughs> um, so there's that nice mix of playing it subtly and real. We call play at the top of your intelligence, just committing to reality. And that's such a common note when I do my workshops as well. On paper, everything you did was right in what you said, but the way you're saying it is so... Just act like yourself. Just be real, and it'll come off so much better. And I think sometimes people will listen to an improv for humans, or watch an ASCAT, or watch whatever the the flagship shows at your theater. And the part of the scene they'll remember is kind of the end of the scene, the most heightened part, because that's where it built up to. It was just hilariously funny, but that's not where it started. 
it started probably in a more grounded place, uh, truth, if you will. Um, right. It started in a place the audience could recognize it was grounded in a grounded way of acting. So if there's beginner improv students, I'd say, just remember to start the scenes grounded and real and heightened and explored to a place of hilarious absurdity and craziness. But when you start scenes there, there's nowhere for the scene to go. It just peters out. Um, so I think that was another big lesson of mine. And if I had it, it may be something I didn't have much perspective on until years later to look back and go, Oh, you know what? I was probably not a very good actor when I started. <laughs> All right. I know you're a busy man and you got to run. Um, do you have anything you want to leave with anybody that might be listening that looks up to you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um well, what can I say? Visit us. New York, if you're ever, if you're ever there, I, I will say because I assume your listeners are, are students of improv or, yeah. or improvisers, pretty much. So, right. uh, like, like like you said, and, and I appreciate you saying that, that that listening to improv for humans, you can learn a lot. Really, go to shows in your town. Listen to improv for humans. Um, and even watch sketch shows that you like. Right. And really examine the beginning of scenes. Um, and that's why sketch shows can help too. Like sketch, you don't have time to waste on a lot of meandering about and setup. You get to the premise or you're going to lose the audience. The audience doesn't want a lot of yes ending. They want if then, if you read our book. So... Look at how a scene starts. Listen, um, like an improv for humans will tell a story and then launch into a scene. Really listen how the performer is is taking what they thought was funny from the story and, and the way they give clues to the other performer. Listen to the subtleties. And sometimes it'll not be very subtle at all, and sometimes it'll be very subtle to where you're like, where'd that come from? But the important thing is that the performers know where it, where it comes from. Um, that's, to me, the way to listen to improv as a student of it, is to really pay attention to the beginning of scenes. Uh, I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and if you, if you like, if I can plug it, buy our book. It's on, it's, you can get it on Amazon or at the UCB Theater Store online. Yeah, I'm going to put a link um, to it below the, the podcast as well. And I personally, I can't recommend it enough. Um, definitely pick it up if you're listening. Matt, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it more than you know. All right. Thanks, guys. Boston Strong. <laughs> thanks, Matt. All right. That was Matt Besser, everybody. Uh, that was awesome. He's uh, probably my favorite improviser out there. Uh, such a smart guy, and it was a total privilege to talk to him. Uh, thank you for listening, and... Rest in peace, non-improvisers. Peace.